I'll be reading from Exodus um, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. You know those occasions where you may be listening to the radio or watching television and an announcement comes through that goes something like this. We interrupt this program for an important announcement. You know that phrase. You've heard that before. Well, what I want to say is we interrupt the sermon series for an important message. Because if you're following along in this sermon series, you know the title of the series is Ancient Stories, Contemporary Truth. It's pretty much been a narrative. We've looked at Old Testament stories and tried to extract from those ancient stories contemporary truth for our own life. And you'll notice the reading this morning is not exactly a narrative. Oh, it is, but it was the Ten Commandments. And as a matter of fact, it was the first two commandments. And the reason we interrupt this important series is to give you an important message. Idolatry is a big problem. You're going to see that throughout, if you haven't already, the book of Kings, First and Second Kings. You'll see it throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Idolatry is a big problem. That's why God put it right up front in the Ten Commandments. But I begin with a question. Really? It's the title of my sermon. What's the big deal about idolatry? Why does God get so worked up about it? What's the problem? You know, as a matter of fact, theologians for centuries have kind of tried to reduce sin to its common core and say the root sin is this or that or the other. And probably the most popular form of that is to say that at the root of all sin is pride. That may be true. I'm not sure what the root sin is. But I do know this, that in the Bible, idolatry is named a sin more than any other sin. There is no other sin in the Bible that's named more than idolatry. You may say that's a form of pride. Well, you can go there. I just want to let the record stand. The biggest sin in the Bible is idolatry. As a matter of fact, it's not just an Old Testament theme. You know, you hear about idols in the Old Testament. You hear about God telling the people of Israel, don't follow after other gods. It's in the New Testament as well. As a matter of fact, if you were to take out your Bible right down the, near the end of our entire canon is the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They represent an author who was a disciple who lived longer than any of the other disciples. In fact, he's the disciple, the only one, who was not martyred. John lived to an old age and died on the Isle of Patmos, best we can tell. And when he was writing to the people who were Christ followers, he called them dear children because he felt like he was a father to all these people following Christ. And he said at the very end of his first epistle, the very last line, he gives them these words. 
Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, I just have one final important thing to say. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Keep yourself from idols. Old Testament and New, the sin of idolatry is the largest. And what is it? Well, it's pretty simple. It's anything that eclipses God, a replacement for God. Anything that replaces God or stands as an object of worship instead of God. That's an idol. Now, before we advance any further, let's own something right now, okay? Here it is. Idolatry is inevitable. And faith in Christ does not make you immune to it. It doesn't. Just like sin is inevitable, and faith in Christ doesn't make you immune to it. The point is this. Not whether or not there are idols in your life and in mine. But what are the idols in your life and in mine? And how do we go about eliminating them? That's the real question. So let's consider that. As is often uh, the case, I'm going to give you three words to think about this topic with me. First is delightful. The second is deceptive. And the third is destructive. First, delightful. Idols are absolutely delightful. Or, to put it another way, idols are good. Really good. Sounds like a heresy, but it's not. Why? Because idols are things, whether desires or objects, that God has created. And God didn't create anything except what was good. So idols in and of themselves are not evil, just like there's no such thing as an entity called evil. Idols are good. Idols become idols because we twist the original goodness that God has delivered to us as human beings and we turn them into gods. Thus they become evil. They're actually good. I, um, I, I love C.S. Lewis and I know probably you get tired of hearing me refer to him. But here we go again. One of C.S. Lewis's uh, delightful books is a book called Screwtape Letters, right? You've heard of it before. I hope you've read it, and if you have read it, I hope it was recently, and I hope if it's been a long time, you go back and reread it. I don't know how many times I've read Screwtape Letters. I think I could read it at least twice a year because it's so poignant. It says so much about our human condition, about where I'm living, about the things that I struggle with, Okay. Well, for those of you who don't know, and for those of you who do, just a reminder, screw tape is an elder devil, right? An elder demon. He's the uncle of a younger demon named Wormwood. And so the whole book is screw tape writing letters to Wormwood. He's consulting with him about his job. His job is to lead Christians astray. Right? So he consults with him concerning the day's events. And he gives him advice as an elder statesman demon 
about how to turn these people away from our enemy, that is, Jesus Christ. Early in the book, uh, Screwtape recognizes that Wormwood is trying to lead astray a Christian with pleasures. And he says, I need to tell you something about this subject called pleasures. My young Wormwood, he says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, where we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. That's God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures, and all our research so far has not enabled us to produce even one. All we can do is to encourage humans to take pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we will always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, less redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the formula. That's how you'll get them. Take what God has created because screw tape says to Wormwood, that's all you got, kid. That's all you got. God created all of it and he named it good. So you got to take what's good and you have to twist it. That's why I said idols are delightful because originally they're good. Very good. It's what we do with them that makes them idols. So first, delightful. That's what an idol is. Second, deceptive. That's also what an idol is. Deceptive. Um, when we think about idolatry in the Old Testament, and we'll hear a lot about it through First and Second Kings, when we think about idolatry in the Old Testament, we may have a tendency to be a bit condescending towards the ancients. Right? Those pitiful, simplistic people. They had these little idols they held in their hands. They had shrines where they put their idols. They wouldn't actually bow down to these objects of worship, which are idols. How silly of them. How unsophisticated. You do remember, right, that every one of those idols was an indication of something else. So there were idols for the purpose of war, victory in war. There were idols for the purpose of weather, so you could have crops. There were idols for the purpose of fertility. There were idols for the purpose of sex and all other pleasures. Idols always stood as an object whereby you achieved an end. You were looking for something and the idol got you there. Um, what about us? Now we don't do the idol thing, right? We're really sophisticated. We just bypass the idol and go right to the desire. So we just boldly pursue uninhibited pleasure. 
we run after with all our heart money or power or fame or romantic love which can be an idol or our families which can be an idol our spouse or our children which also can be idols we attach our hearts to those things we just bypass the stupid little image instead of holding the image in our hands as the ancients did we hold the idol in our hearts because only God deserves our complete affection because only God can fully satisfy our hearts oh but we're so sophisticated we just bypass the image and go straight to the source idols are deceptive because our hearts are deceptive but they're also deceptive because our culture deceives us right it's hard to identify idols in your particular culture yours and mine because we're living in the culture we're like fish in the water right we can't identify the water it is us we are it if we're fish in our cultures, it's difficult for us to identify the idols because in our culture, there are idols that are held up in high regard as virtues. And so we miss them. Um, a book I read this week, um, one of several when preparing for this was uh, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. I don't routinely just recommend books straight up, but I'm just going to recommend the book straight up, okay? I'm endorsing it with all its wonderful parts and whatever other parts I don't agree with. The book is amazing. Because the book tells you that your heart is an idol factory. And you are inclined by your very nature to chase after something other than God. And chasing after something other than God is always going to leave you empty because only God supplies your deepest inner heart's need. He says uh, in that book that one of the huge difficulties of identifying idols is because our culture has convinced us that certain idols are just fine. As a matter of fact, he alludes to the unsophisticated pagans and suggests that we are a lot more like them than we think. He says that, as a matter of fact, every culture has its own idols and every culture has its own priests. Listen to these words. We should not think that one culture, any culture, that one culture is less idolatrous than the next. That's really a bad thing to believe. Every culture is idolatrous, ours included. So we shouldn't think that one culture is less idolatrous than the other. Traditional societies tend to make the family unit and the clan into an absolute ultimate thing. This can lead to honor killings, the treatment of women as chattel, and violence towards others like gay people. 
Western societies, on the other hand, different than the so-called traditional or ancient societies, Western secular cultures make an idol out of individual freedom. And this leads to the breakdown of family, rampant materialism, careerism, and idolization of romantic love, physical beauty, and profit. Every culture has its own ingrained idols, and it's so hard to see them because we're living with them. And quite frankly, a lot of times they just seem so good. Um, <coughs> it's very difficult for me to embrace this reality. <coughs> That the very thing that I am called to do can become an idol. I am called to love my wife and my children. And my love of my wife and my children can actually eclipse God. It's so right for me to love them. It's Father's Day. What else? Do fathers do but love their children? Fathers love their children sometimes in a way that almost kills them. That's what happens or kills the father. Because the love of the child overwhelms the love of God. And that's so hard to understand and to believe. But it can be true. Our love of our spouses and our children uh, can become idols. Because idols are so deceptive. The third word I told you was destructive. Because idols are also destructive. But continuing that theme of love of spouse and children. One of the reasons idols are destructive is because they actually destroy the object of our love. If I place my wife and children in a position of an idol and I attempt to extract from them only what God can supply me. I crush them. They don't have the capacity to give me what God can give me. So the destruction is not just against me, it's against the other. I put that other up on a pedestal and he or she cannot possibly achieve my deep desires. Only God can. So I crush them with my love of them. Idolatry is destructive not only to us but to the other. As a matter of fact, there's another reason idolatry is so destructive. It's because when we pursue the idol... We think we're going to get it, and it gets us in the end. The thing we, we long for and hope for and run after and we achieve, it owns us. The tables are turned, and we're destroyed by it. The idol itself is destructive. Pardon my reference to C.S. Lewis one more time, but if you uh, have read or seen 
um, any of the films recently. Uh, one uh, book is The Void of the Don Treader, which is just a wonderful book. For those of you who read it or, or seen films, you, you seen the film, you, you know who Eustace is, right? Eustace is the kid in the group who is really annoying. Um, he's hard to get along with. Everybody hates him. He seems to hate everybody. He seems to have goals that are never about the other or the, the group. It's always about him. And Eustace is just constantly about Eustace. He's got his own idols. And on one occasion, Eustace thinks he's found it. Satisfaction he always desired. He falls upon a cave. Remember the cave? Full of unspeakable wealth. Jewels and gold and silver. He's overcome with delight. Falls into those wonderful objects of wealth. Practically swimming in them. You know what happens to Eustace. Eventually he wakes up. And he's no longer Eustace. He's a dragon. A dragon bejeweled but a dragon nonetheless. Sounds like a dragon, looks like a dragon, is captured by a dragon. Eustace inside a dragon. And he wants so much to get out of that skin. He wants so much to retreat from the cave that drew him in. It's greed. It's incredible, overwhelming, destructive greed. And now the greed possesses him. The object of wealth now surrounds him like a scale of a dragon. That's what idolatry does to us. It draws us in, and when we grasp the idol, it grasps us. And we're encased by it. So idols are destructive because they destroy the other when it's a person, they're destructive because they destroy us, because the object controls us. And you know, idols are destructive, well, quite simply, just because they destroy life. This week, when I thought back about idolatry, I remembered the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Remember the story of the garden. Everything was constructed in a well-ordered, perfect way. God, the author of creation, was the lover of those who walked in the garden, namely Adam and Eve. They had everything their hearts desired. And he told them, don't eat from that tree. You know the story, and they ate from it. And then, when they sinned, at the end of the description of their sin, God says, we've got to block them from the other tree. What other tree? You've got to block them from the tree of life. The tree of life. That, that's what God gives us life. And that's just the point, isn't it? It's as though when you look at that story, God is saying, in effect, they have destroyed themselves with sin. They've so infected themselves that I will not, in my divine love, allow them to live forever in their sin. They cannot reach out and touch the tree of life. It would be ultimately destructive for them to live forever in their sin. Of course, we know the rest of the story, right? 
Only God gives eternal life. And it comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Why is idolatry so destructive? Because it kills life. It destroys life. And we were made to live forever. That's why God hates idolatry. Because he loves you. Because he knows it will kill you. And so he hates it. And sometimes he punishes you to keep you from it. Well, if uh, idolatry is delightful and deceptive and destructive, what's the good news? Uh, What's the remedy? What's the cure? Um, If I'm the doctor, I'm giving you a prescription. Let me tell you what it's not first, okay? Remember when you were little kids or when you had little kids, uh, there was this game called whack-a-mole? Remember that? It was like a big circle, whack-a-mole. And you'd turn it on and these little moles would pop up out of the holes. And they'd pop up all over the place, right? And the little kid had a hammer, big thing. It was like padded and everything. And you'd whack the mole back down. And you'd go from one mole to another. And if you were really fast, you could get them all down. No, you could never get them all down. Because another mole was going to pop up and you'd have to whack it too. See, that's the way we approach sin and idolatry and just about everything else in our life. We think we'll control it with the whack-a-mole mechanism. There's that idol, smash! There's that idol, bang! I'll kick that one. It won't work. It won't work. They just keep popping up. You know what I think... God says about how to deal with idolatry, which is in all of our lives. He says, don't use the whack-a-mole method. Use the pursuit method. Here's the idol. Pursue me. I want to reframe God's hatred of idolatry for a moment with the book of Hosea. God, the ultimate lover, tells Hosea, I want you to demonstrate my love to Israel by going after and pursuing your wife, even though she's a harlot. I want you to keep bringing her back and keep forgiving her so I can prove to Israel how much I love her. God is in effect not just saying, Israel, I love you this much. God is in effect saying, Israel, I love you this much. I am the satisfaction for your soul. So stop running after the idols, whatever they are, and run to me. Run to me. Let me satisfy you. That's the powerful approach of the spiritual disciplines in the Christian tradition. Not to smash sin and to fight it and to whack it with a mole-whack hammer. It's to pursue God passionately in prayer and study of the word and meditation and fasting and in all the other ways that we come to know and to love God. It's pursue God, not the idol that distracts us. Will you do it perfectly? No. But it's a method of idol destruction. And it's the one that God calls us to.
Um, this week, uh, for the kids, you, you, most of you were at Camp Olivet, right? And um, maybe tonight at the, at the reunion, maybe this is a request for Rick, um, they'll, they'll, they'll sing the song, You Shall Love the Lord Your God with All Your Heart, Soul and Mind. I almost asked uh, Rick last night if he would be prepared to sing it and have you join us. How do you handle idolatry? In the words of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Pursue the Lord your God in a passionate, unending pursuit. That's how to handle idolatry. I, I almost want to sing the song, but I, I'm too embarrassed to do it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your heart. You shall love the Lord your God. with all your heart, soul, and mind. And you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The cure for idolatry, let Jesus, the one who loves you, be the lover of your life. You know, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm preaching next week and then I'm taking a break because I need one. Um, and you need a break from me. Because <laughs> I know I can be kind of intense sometimes. Uh, but I want to try to explain something, okay, about how I see the good news. I think if the good news is just wonderful, joyful platitudes about how much God loves you and how wonderful you are, it's not really the good news. I, I, I just believe that. See, it seems like to me that the good news is a deep, introspective look at our own sin and a realization that the God who loves us so much, who died for us, is willing to lead us away from it, step by step, and give us eternal life. But the only way we can be led away from the sin that so easily besets us, the only way we can give up the idols in our life, is to identify the reality of idolatry in our life. And let God do his sometimes hard, painful work in our heart for us to find freedom. That's the way the good news emerges. I go back to uh, one more reference to C.S. Lewis and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Remember Eustace? He was the boy who turned into a dragon because of greed. And now that boy, um, he wants out. He don't want to be a dragon anymore. And on one occasion, in the book, he meets a mysterious lion. We all know that it's Aslan. And the mysterious lion uh, engages him in conversation and basically Eustace admits that he's tried to peel off the skin of the dragon and become Eustace again. He's tried uh, repeatedly um, 
And every time he, he pulls off a layer, he finds another one. And he's just stuck. The lion uh, in this conversation finally says to Eustace, he says, um, you'll have to let me undress you, Eustace. That's a problem. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate by now. So I just lay flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I had done to myself the other three times, only they didn't hurt. And there he was, lying in the grass, that beastly scale, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others that had been there. And there was I, as smooth as a soft peeled switch, and smaller than I'd been. I turned into a boy again. You see the point? You can't deliver yourself from idols. God has to do a work in your heart where he peels it back. And part of the peeling back so you can become a new boy or a new girl again is the recognition, the hard reality that you have an idol. The identification of it so that it can be pulled back like the dragon skin by God. That, my friends, is good news. Because you can't pull it back yourself. Only God can. When he identifies it, let him do the work and pursue him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. We're going to stop now, in complete silence, and I'm going to ask you to allow God to show you some idols so that you can ask him to pull them away and you can promise to pursue him. Will you pause with me in prayer? Our gracious Heavenly Father and, and most loving Savior, we thank you that you don't leave us alone, that you refuse to leave us in our sins, that you pursue us in ways that are sometimes painful to begin with, but when we follow you, delightful in their freedom. We thank you you've created everything good, Lord, it's not that we love things too much. It's that we love you too little because you gave us those things so that through them we could love you completely.
So we pray, Lord, that you'll reorient our hearts by faith. You'll identify the idols that are wrapped around us and ones that are imperceptible to us, that they will emerge. And that you will give us uh, the power of understanding, which comes from your spirit to identify them. And then give us the power uh, to pursue you which also comes from the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you loved us so much that you gave yourself for us. Uh, You paid the penalty for sin in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We thank you for this. And it is in his name, the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.